chapter 4, verses 13 to uh, chapter 5, verses 6. Um, again, James 4, 13 to 5, 6, and that's on page 1013 in your blue Bibles, and also will be placed on the overhead here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marla, for uh, reading for us that uh, traditional Christmas text. And uh, good morning to you and Merry Christmas to you. I, I do hope that you can come back this Tuesday evening uh, for our Christmas Eve service. I, I, I promise we will have a more traditional Christmas Eve text, a Christmas text then. Uh, a Christmas Eve is one of my, my favorite services that we do throughout the year, so I, I very much look forward to seeing you there if you're able to make it. Is God real to you? Not do you believe he exists, but, but is he real to you? Does he matter? That's the question that James invites us to consider this morning, that that for how you think about your future, how you think about your wealth, your treasure, it matters very much how, how your heart and mind fit God into that picture, and it matters very much if God doesn't fit in. Is God real to you? Well, let's please play with, pray with me as we listen to what God has to say. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for saying hard things to us as we encounter here in this passage. And we know that you always speak to us, uh, your children, for our good. So we pray that you would do that this morning. Uh, Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So is God real to you? Do you live as if he matters, as if his existence, his reality, is not just a philosophical point that you accept intellectually, but does your life and your heart and your desires and everything about you that's really important, does it matter for you that God is real? During the scripture reading, you probably noticed that our passage covers two topics. There are two paragraphs 
So James has two things to say to two groups of people. Uh, so you notice in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, and so on. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich. Come now, or let me tell you something. Listen to what I'm telling you. Wake up and listen to me. And you might notice that these two sections have some similar notes, but also different points as well. Uh, What's different? Uh, The first section is addressed to people who we might call the merchant class. They're the people who travel around from place to place doing business. They're, They're businessmen. The second section, on the other hand, is addressed to people who are probably wealthy landowners. They're, they're the, the landed gentry, if you want to sound Jane Austen with it. So businessmen in the first, uh, landowners in the second. Something else that's different. The, the, the businessmen, the merchants, are presumably Christians because they ought to know about the will of the Lord, and they ought to shape their lives and their business around the will of the Lord. It's usually not something that you tell someone who doesn't actually know the will of the Lord or doesn't know the Lord himself. The second group, on the other hand, the landowners are not Christians. Or if they think they are, they've forfeited any right to be called by that name because James has nothing to say to them except condemnation. They have nothing to look to from God except eternal judgment and punishment. So merchants who are probably Christians and landowners who are probably not Christians, that's how these sections differ, Um, but there's something also similar that unites both of them. Both groups are living as if God's not real. The first group, they make their business plans as if God's not real, as if his plans don't matter. In the second group, they hoard up their wealth, which destroys poor, poor people in the process, again, as if God's not real, as if his judgment's not coming. So here's how we're, we're going to look at this uh, through two questions. Do you make plans as if God's not real? And do you seek your treasure as if God's not real? So first of all, do you make plans as if God's not real, as if he doesn't matter. Uh, that's what these merchants, these traveling businessmen are doing. And notice that James talks about what they say and what they ought to say. There's what they say and why that's a problem, and then what they ought to say and why it's a problem that they're not saying it. So here's what they say. Look at that with me again in verse 13 of chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. They're making plans. They're they're in the office with the whiteboard, mapping out their strategic plans and putting together their white paper for the future of the business. You know, we're going to to get into this market in Antioch and and do a test run there, and then we're going to go to Ephesus because our our product fits a a, a niche there, and then the year after that, we're we're we're, we're going big time. We're we're taking Rome by storm. They're strategizing. They're, They're making plans. And the problem isn't that they're making plans, and the problem is not that they're trying to make a profit, that the problem is that they're making plans and trying to earn a profit as if God has nothing to do with anything. Really, the problem is that underlying their plans, there's a profoundly arrogant and presumptuous attitude. So verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In other words, you're so confident in the plans that you've made for yourself, you're so sure that it's going to work out the way that you think it will, but how do you know? How could you ever possibly know? Tomorrow, all your plans might get thrown out the window. And I think for those of you who are young, or at least younger than me, it can be really surprising and painful the first time that you really learn this lesson. I think about my own story, how towards the end of, of graduate school, uh, Tori and I had, we had a pretty clear sense of what was next. I, there was going to be a, a ministry position in the church we were attending, and then a, a PhD a few years down the road, and then, of course, a couple of kids along the way. It, it was all going to happen pretty straightforward, and none of it happened that way. The ministry position went to someone else. Then the economy collapsed. And the kids did come, but nothing like in the manner we thought they would. The way we had planned our lives and the way that our lives actually played out looked nothing alike. And it was a pretty hard lesson to learn. It was painful. So James says to people planning out exactly what they're going to do tomorrow and then the next day and then the next year and they're so sure how everything is going to work out exactly like they expect it to and want it to, he tells them, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Everything could change. And it's not just that your plans could change, but you don't even know if you will be around to make plans at all. Your life, James says, is mist. It's, it's fragile. It's, it's quick. Or to put it another way, your life is as uncertain and as changing and as passing as the weather. And that's why what they say is so arrogant. So that's, that's what they say. Here's what they ought to say. Verse 15. And said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So you can still make plans. You can still hope for the best outcome and work for the best outcome. But, but you know that whatever happens, it happens because that's how the God who created the universe and he works in and, and shapes every part of your life. You know that's how he wills it. What you ought to say, in other words, is that God is real. That he's sovereign. He's in control. I hope these plans work out this way, but at the end of the day, God's plans are going to happen. That's what you ought to say. And here's why it's a problem that you don't. Verse 16. As it is, as you're making your plans, as if God's not real or in control over everything, you boast in your arrogance, which means that you believe that you are truly self-sufficient, that you don't really need God. And James calls that for what it is at the end of verse 16. All such boasting is evil. To, to, to live as if God is not real, to live, to live as if you don't need him, to live as if your life is in your hands to do whatever you want with it, that boasting, he says, is actually evil. It's, it's actively hostile to the God who you claim to worship. It's sinful, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
Whoever knows the right thing to do means whoever knows that you should be saying if the Lord wills. Whoever deep down knows that your plans and God's plans aren't always the same thing. For you to know that and not to do it is sin. To put it another way, there is a functional sinful belief here which says that I am the sovereign ruler of my life. I am the real king. I am the real God. So my question for you, is that you? Do you make plans as if God's not real? I can think of two types of people who might struggle with this. Driven people and control people. If you've come to Chicago from somewhere else, which is a lot of us, including me, you're probably a fairly driven person. You're, you're ambitious. You, you left somewhere smaller because you wanted something bigger. The world is your oyster. And excellence and success and professionalism are very important to you. And on the, on the one hand, those are good things. God created you to work. He created you to do, to, to do good work. You should be ambitious for the good work that he's made you to do. But on the other hand, an ambitious, driven person can be a functionally self-sufficient person. A person who makes plans and dreams and strategizes as if your functional theology is that you are your own God. You are the sovereign ruler of your life. Same goes for control people. And I don't just mean controlling people, but more just people who need control. People who need and desire to to be the master of everything happening around you. And when that doesn't happen, when, when you don't have control... And when your plans go out the window and when your kids don't conform to your, your scheduling preferences and, and when your coworkers don't pull their weight, you can unravel because you need control. You, you want control. You, you can live like you're the master over your life. But you're not. You can't be. There's only one true God. There's only one real king. There's only one sovereign ruler over your life. And it's not But here's the good news. God's complete sovereignty isn't just a cold, hard fact that you need to accept. It's actually a gracious gift, a glorious gift for you to rest in. Because do you want to know how God's sovereignty actually works? It doesn't work for your pleasure and ease and success. It works even through pain and grief and loss for the display of the gospel. That's what the Apostle Peter says in his first sermon. He, he says that Jesus, who was crucified and killed through the plans of evil men, actually went to the cross, Peter says, according to the definite knowledge, for the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The sovereign power that rules your life is the same sovereign power that sent your Savior to die for you. And what the Apostle Paul says is that your hope, even in your sufferings, even when your plans go horribly wrong, even then, Paul says, this is your hope. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Our good is not our professional success. It's not our ease. It's not 
any kind of escape from struggle and grief and frustration. Our good is the unbreakable love of God for us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what his sovereignty means. That's why it's okay that you're not the ruler of your life. So think about, how, think about what this means for your plans. It means that you can do this. It means that my life isn't something to desperately grasp onto because I'm terrified about what will happen if things don't go the way I want them to. But my life can be, can be this. He's working out all things for my good for the knowledge of his love, which no change of plans can ever take from me. I read an interview with a woman called Mara, which wasn't her real name. And, and if you're at the, the Lunch and Learn uh, at our downtown office this past Tuesday, my apologies for repeating myself. But, but Mara had been, repeat, had been uh, depressed for 18 years from a, a teenager into adulthood and uh, motherhood and, and marriage. And, and it was crippling and devastating. And finally, slowly, she came out of her depression. And the interview was about that process. And and it was slow and complicated, but, but big, two big things stuck out for her that helped her. One was God's grace. It, it, she finally, after a, a terrible moral failing, understood God's grace for her, really for the first time. And the other, after she, she really got a hold of grace, was God's sovereignty in all this. Here's what she said. I came to the place where I decided I could no longer argue with God about who he is and his will for my life even if it was his will for me to be depressed. It was a breaking process. If it was his will for me to be depressed for the rest of my life, then I had to bow to that. Who was I to argue with God? And if that sounds hard, just thinking about God's will in my depression, for her, she says, it was actually freeing. And this is, this is her experience. It may not be everyone's experience, but, but for her, what it did was it freed her from trying to escape what she struggled with, and it freed her to just live her life. And through that, she came out of that depression. It, it, it took a long time, and there, there were twists and turns and setbacks, but, but God's sovereignty was freeing. The will of God was for her a way to be free. Here's another example of how this, this works out. Uh, Ed Welch told a story about David Pallison at his memorial service, and it's when Pallison was doing a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so he was you know, getting an Ivy League doctorate, which is a pre- pretty big deal. And Welch came over to his house one evening when Pallison was in his basement typing his dissertation. And this was before you could save everything onto the cloud instantly without even doing anything. So you had to actually then, if you remember, uh, physically protect your work. You had to actively do something to stop it from being lost. And as he's working, a leak sprung in a pipe somewhere above him, and water dripped down onto his computer, and it fried it. And he came up the stairs from the basement and said, I've just lost about a hundred hours of work. But Welch says, He wasn't angry. He wasn't upset. I would have wanted to grab a baseball bat and start destroying something if that happened to me. But he wasn't upset because, Walt said, he had such a strong 
restful belief in the sovereign will of God. It didn't make the experience easy or pleasant, but it meant he could be okay with it because because he he wasn't doing this with his life. He was open to whatever happened, even losing 100 hours of work because of a water leak. So the question for you, do you make your plans as if God is real? Which gets to the the deeper question, who is really the ruler of your life? What scripture says is that Jesus Christ will always be a better and more liberating and life-giving ruler than you will ever be for yourself. So is he real for you? Second question that James throws at us. Do you seek your treasure as if God is real? So first, talking to the merchants, talking to the businessmen who are always making plans and strategizing, he asks you to take God into consideration in your plans. And now, talking to the landowners, talking to the very wealthy and powerful, he asks if you take God into consideration in your treasures. Uh, I said earlier that this second section, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, are probably not addressed to Christians. And that's because of the depths of their wickedness and cruelty and the frightening intensity of God's judgment that's coming for them. Uh, Look at that starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. (laughs) Weep and howl are they're, they're Old Testament prophet words. They're, they're words that the prophets in the Old Testament used to address the enemies of God. Weep and howl because miseries are coming upon you. God's judgment is coming for you. Who's it coming for? Who should weep and howl? The rich. James is tantalizingly unspecific about that. Just the rich. And it's a word that might make some people gleeful because it it means that the people that I hate the most are really going to get it. It makes other people uncomfortable. It it gives us dancing feet and we want to dance around it and and assure ourselves that there's just no way that he's talking about me. So what do we make of this? Who's James really talking about here? Well, when we listen closely to how James describes these rich people, and we compare it to what we know from the historical record at this time, it seems that James is talking about wealthy landowners who are getting richer and richer and owning more and more property at the expense of small-time landowners and poor laborers who are getting poorer and poorer and and losing their land to these, these big names. And James has four accusations against them, or really it's, it's two accusations repeated. Their corrupted desires and how those corrupted desires are predatory against poor people. And then again, their corrupted desires and, and again how those desires are, are eating up people with less power and money. So first accusation about their corrupted desires, verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That's very colorful language, isn't it? All of your wealth 
all your gold, all your money, all your fancy clothes, all the, all the treasures you've given your life to, they're all fading away. Just like your life is a mist, so your wealth is fading. But, James tells these people, you've hoarded them all up for your own selfish purposes as if they are actually eternal. The scholar Doug Moo puts it this way. He says that although the rich people do not or cannot see it, their great wealth has already lost its luster. It stands already under the doom of the things of this world that will fade away and can provide no foundation for the life to come. And it's interesting that James says that, that the corrosion of what's most precious to you will actually be used as evidence against you. What he means is that their corrupted attitude towards wealth, which is all about hoarding up at the expense of other people rather than to help other people, that that attitude will be used as evidence in God's judgment against you. Which in this colorful prophetic language says that they will eat your flesh like fire. And notice how in all this, all their hoarding, these rich people have missed something crucial. They've, James says that you've laid up treasure in the last days. In the, in the New Testament, the last days means that, it means this time that we're in now. It's, it's the time that starts when Jesus comes, when he came the first time, and it will come to completion when he returns Again, which means that that these rich landowners have misread the times. The grace of God and Jesus Christ is here. Judgment is coming, and they've completely missed it. They're blind to it. That's the first accusation. Here's the second. It's how their corrupted desires have consumed other people. Read that with me in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In that day, if you were a poor laborer, you could hire yourself out to one of these landowners and as, a, as a day laborer to work their fields. So you'd, you'd agree to a, a payment in the morning at the beginning of the day, and then you get, you get paid at the end of the day. But these landowners, astoundingly, aren't doing that. They're not paying them. A few years ago, here in Chicago, a, a certain local coffee chain had a rather spectacular implosion, which was especially notable for the fact that the employees weren't getting paid. And James says that those wages, which you've unjustly held back from them, are crying out against you. The wages, the unpaid wages, are crying out against you. And God hears. He hears the cries of the people being defrauded and bulldozed over because it's not just a paycheck. It's their lives. It's it's money to feed your family that day. God hears that cry. There will be justice. And for these rich landowners, that justice will be terrible. Which is to say that God hates this exploitation. Just like he hates every kind of exploitation and injustice. Racism. He hates it. Trafficking. He hates it. The abuse of every small and unwanted person on this planet. He hates it. And he hears. 
The third accusation is back to their corrupted desires. Verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, what was the point of all your hoarding up of that wealth? So you could enjoy it. But what have you actually done? You're like, and this is really colorful language, you're like a cow being fattened up for slaughtering. The day of slaughter is the coming day of judgment. And, and all of your self-indulgence off the backs of poor people is just fattening you up for your destruction. One more accusation against these rich people. Back to what you've done to the poor people. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous person here is the poor person whom these rich landowners have defrauded and and muscled off their land. They're the ones who have been cheated out of their wages. They're the ones who have been dragged into court for failing to make these exorbitant mortgage payments. They're the ones who've sold their last scrap of land to pay back loans that they, they can never pay back on their own wages. The, the, the rich have condemned and murdered them. They, they've taken everything away from them and left them to starve. It's Christmas season. So what, what better example of this than Ebenezer Scrooge? What, what does Scrooge do? He routinely evicts people out of his slum tenements for mispayments. He makes his employees work 15 hours a day for little pay and threatens to fire them if they complain. He only begrudgingly gives them a day off on Christmas. He refuses to give money to charity for the poor because his taxes already pay for the prisons and workhouses. And anyway, they're they're better off dead because it decreases the overpopulation of the city. And don't forget Tiny Tim, the son of his employee, Bob Cratchit who's going to die because his family can't afford to get him proper care because Scrooge refuses his father to pay his father a fair wage. That's who these people are. They're the definition of Scrooge, who hoard up all their wealth and run over whoever they need to run over as if God is not real and he's not going to do anything about it. So... What do we do with this? Uh, Remember, James is probably not talking about Christians here, but he is talking to Christians in this church. So so what's the point? John Calvin, the the great reformer, put it this way. He says that James has two reasons for saying this. One is to comfort the people who are being defrauded and murdered. For the people being thrown out in the streets because of the the unrelenting greed of people in power, he's saying that, that God... He hears you. He's for you. And second reason, Calvin says, is to watch out for the temptation of these same kinds of desires. The temptation to seek your treasure as if God's not real. Because if God's not real, then how you get your treasure and what you do with it, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? And I wonder if this is something that's really good for us to hear at this time of year, when we're doing most of our buying, and when, at least in our culture, we're, we're taught from a very young age to desire and look for material things as if our happiness depends on it. This, 
There's a functional belief at play here. It's a, a belief which says that, that my greatest treasure is what I can accumulate and enjoy, and who cares about what everyone else has to do with things. So what's your treasure? One writer says that your treasure, according to the Bible, means your motivation. So Jesus said that, that where your treasure is, that there your heart will be also. What, what, what you love, what, what, what motivates you, that's your treasure. And that same writer asked the question this way. He says, what makes you feel rich, secure, prosperous? What would make your life sing? And for a lot of us, I, I know certainly what I'm tempted to so often, what would make my life sing is what I can buy. No one wants to be like that. I don't want to be like that. But if you could translate your bank statement into a story, what story would it tell? Luxury? Self-indulgence? What, what story would it tell about what's most valuable to you? So if my problem here, or your problem here, is that I believe that my greatest treasure is what I can accumulate and enjoy for myself, then I need another belief. I need to believe what the Bible tells me about my treasure. That my greatest treasure is actually the one who gave up his treasures for me. Paul says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And that's not rich in financial assets. It's rich in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the richness of forgiveness. It's the, the richness of his love. It's the richness of his wisdom. It's the richness of every heavenly, eternal, unfading gift which he delights to give. And the way he gives me that wealth, the way he gives you that wealth, is by giving up everything. Giving up the riches of heaven in his incarnation, being born to a poor, powerless family in a backwater place that no one cared about, and being executed by a method which was designed only for subhuman slaves. He became poor to give you his riches. And when Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure, not what you can accumulate and hoard up, not what you can buy for your own amusement, not especially for you kids, what you're chopping at the bits waiting for on Christmas Day to get it. But when Jesus is your greatest treasure, then you will have something that will never corrode. You will have a treasure that testifies for you, for your justification, and not against you for your judgment. And you will have a treasure that frees you to give away and use you and free you from the slavery of all those other treasures and frees you to use them to love people, not consume them. To the question for you again, do you seek your treasure as if God is real? So is God real to you? Do you make your plans as if he's real? Do you, do you seek your treasure as if he's real? In a moment, after we come to the Lord's table, we're going to close with a traditional Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the name Emmanuel means God with us. And the, the chorus says, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. He's God with us, with you. He, he comes to you, which means that he's real.
He comes to you as a spectacular reality who bursts in upon our short-sighted tunnel vision of our little plans and treasures. And we know that he's real, not because we're good and smart and holy people who figured it all out, but we know he's real because he came to us. We didn't come to him. He came to us. He's real. So is he real to you? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, 